continue worship with a reading from Exodus 33, 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go from here, you and the people whom have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Y'all liking this weather? Come on, man. I've been outside nonstop. So good. I'm um, Chris. If I don't know you, I'm excited you're here with us online or in person. I'm excited today to invite you into a historical season of the church. Uh, it's been, the church has been observing this season hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a season that leads us up uh, to Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday. Um, and it started this past Wednesday, and it, it marked the beginning of a season the church of the church that we see value in it, with Ash Wednesday. That's when it says it begins, right? And it leads up to Easter, and it's called Lent. Now, growing up, um, I had no clue what this was other than the stuff that came out, came out of my dryer. And my dad had a friend who worked at Sears years and years ago, good, good old Baptist boy. And he was working on Ash Wednesday. Um, and in more traditional liturgical churches, they have an Ash Wednesday, ser- Ash Wednesday service where they um, smear ash on your forehead. I don't know if you've ever seen. You might have seen that this past week. And um, they say something along the lines of, you know, from dust you've come, to dust you return. It's really happy, peppy stuff. And... <laughs> And so this lady comes into Sears, who had obviously been to an Ash Wednesday service, and my dad's friend, being the good old boy he was, had no clue, just trying to help this poor lady out, and says, ma'am, I think you have something on your forehead. And she says, really annoyed, it's lint. And he said, he said, no, it's like charcoal, something like that, right? And, and that's about been my knowledge of this season. You know, that's weird. Okay. Uh, I remember the first time I saw it, actually working in high school, same, same kind of thing. Lady came in, had the stuff on her... But my, I remember my dad's story, so I didn't, you know, I didn't do the thing. But as I'm looking at this lady with the ash on her head, I'm like, is this a Christian thing? What, do I have to do this if I'm going to be in the club? Is this, like, is this a form of hazing, maybe, you know? <laughs> like, either way, we got a bunch of ash, and we're just going to go for it today. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, do you got to, like, you know, you see it, and you're like, do I, do I got to do that to be in the club? No, you don't. Um, and no, the Bible says nothing about Ash Wednesday or even the season of Lent. Or smearing charcoal on your forehead on Ash Wednesday. Bible doesn't say you're not going to find that in the Bible, y'all. Okay, well, why are we talking about this, Chris? Great question. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. There are things in the Bible that even people who say they believe and submit to would rather ignore. Okay, thank you. Lent is an annual reminder of some truths that, quite frankly, are truths that we've lost our ability to hear as a society. And, right? and we'll get to those truths in a second. But before we do, I think you have to ask yourself uh, a couple questions. Number one, what do you personally do with things in the Bible that you don't like? There's a lot of things you can do with them, right? Brush them under the rug. You can find a church that ignores them. You can ignore them. You can uh, justify and dismiss them. Or maybe the better question is this, really. 
what is your understanding of your relationship to the Bible? And this is, this is what I mean by that. Do you stand over the Bible and allow your own cultural ideas to sift the Bible out? Take this out. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't apply to any. Throw this out. Throw that out, right? In other words, do you pour the Bible through your filter and say, I'll be the authority here? Or do you submit yourself to the Bible as God's primary means of revealing himself? And in doing so, do you allow the Bible to sift you? Do you, do you pour your life in the, and through the Bible and say, I'm going to let that tell me. I'm going to let the Bible tell me, no, you got to throw that out. That won't work. That leads to death. That'll kill you. Hmm? Do you approach the Bible in a way that acknowledges your idea of his authority over you? Or do you say, I think I'll be the authority here. This is a very real issue, right? This is a very real issue, and at its root gets at what you really believe leads to life. And the conviction that I have about the Bible, I don't know if you have it, is that it is telling me the way that truly leads to life in abundance and blessing. And there are things in that book that are going to confront you in ways that you would rather not be confronted. And how you respond when you come to things like that will decide whether or not you, in fact, are your own God or you will allow God to be who he is. Because when you make up, when you take the scalpel to the Bible, like many people have done throughout history, like many church movements have done, like many people are doing very today, when you take the scalpel to the Bible, what you have to admit is you are no longer serving the God of the Bible. You are now serving a figment of your own imagination. You have become God. He is no longer God. So this is a massive issue that I'm, in no way am I naive enough to think that all of us have settled this issue in our hearts in this room about the authority of the Bible, right? For many of you, the jury is still out on whether or not the Bible will be an authority in your life and whether or not you will submit to it. And I'm going to be honest, man. If that's you, the jury's still out, this might be a little more difficult for you to stomach. But here's the reality. Even if you are in the camp, they're like, oh, the Bible's my authority, man. I'm gonna, this is still going to be difficult for you. Okay, so there's some really difficult, uncomfortable things in the Bible. But if the Bible claims what it is, if it, if it is what it claims to be, right, which is the one true story of the one who created the cosmos and how he interacts with his creation in history, then even the difficult parts deserve our attention because it's ultimately more substantial. Okay, just hold on. I'm going to make a just bombastic claim. The Bible is ultimately more substantial than the physical universe because it's revealing the force that made the physical universe. Okay, if you're like, okay, okay, buddy, you're stretching it a little bit, hyperbolic. Well, Jesus seemed to have a perspective of Scripture that he said it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away rather than one stroke of the law to fail. Jesus seemed to think the Bible was more substantial than the chair you're sitting in, in terms of revealing reality to you. Uh, come on, just meditate on that for the rest of your life. So the Bible's going to present a drastically different reality. That's seriously, you meditate on that. Like, take it a small group. Like, roll it around. Argue about it. I love that. Come on. The Bible's going to represent 
a drastically different reality than our own ethnocentric, man-centric, me-centric reality that we will prefer, okay? Always going to prefer that. And the Bible's not going to pull punches. It is going to, on repeat, insist that me and you are created things, Beings, images, made to image the one true king. This is kind of like the fundamental assumption of the Bible, okay? So we're kind of getting that right. Me and you created beings, right? Uh, made to image the one true king by ruling and reigning over his creation as his viceroys or his ambassadors, okay? That's, that's what Genesis 1 lays out, okay? But instead, have openly rebelled against the king and tried to claim the throne for ourselves and called others into that rebellion. The Bible's going to paint a picture of creation in rebellion against its created structure. Okay? That's one of the fundamental claims of the Bible, fundamental assumptions, that, created, that creation has rebelled against the structures that it's been created to thrive in. Okay? If this is true, if that's true, if this is really the human position, a state of rebellion against its created purpose, um, if this is true, man, of man, it makes a whole lot of sense uh, of the brokenness that we see in the world. Sorry, I said that really awkwardly, right? In other words, we have amazing potential for glory. All of us can choose life, but in the depths of our hearts, there's something broken that continually sabotages our own efforts, Okay? Makes a lot of sense if you think about it, right? If this is correct, if this is the correct picture of humanity, it changes everything of how you see the world, right? So one of the main things this season calls us into is confront not only the consequences of our sin, but to confront sin and pride itself in our own hearts, right? And how does it do that? Well, it starts with a, symbol, a symbolism of what? Ash. That's what it starts with on Ash Wednesday. It starts with Ash Wednesday. And while you're not going to see Lent, you're not going to see Ash Wednesday in the Bible, what you will see in the Bible is a repeated theme of ash and dust being symbolic for something. What is it? Well, uh, when Abraham intercedes for his nephew in Genesis 18, he approaches God and he calls himself dust and ashes. Uh, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but Dust and ashes. Psalm 103 says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So, so here's this image in the Bible coming up. And it's acknowledging something about you as a person. Something about your position in the universe. Something about your createdness. The fact that you've been created from dust. And to dust you will return. Now, I mean, who doesn't want to talk about that, right? <laughs> it's acknowledging your mortality and your limitations as a person, right? Psalm 39 says, 30 verse 9 says, what profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Psalm 104, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. So here's the metaphor. Simply, dust is death. It's talking about death. Dust and ashes can represent an acknowledging that you are a finite mortal being. And that death is an inescapable reality, and it is coming for every single one of us. You're like, dude, I brought a friend today, bro. Come on. Right. Super chipper. But wait, it gets better. Here we go. There's this other phrase in the Bible, and it's not just ashes. It's sackcloth and ashes. You read that one? 
In Daniel 9, Daniel realizes that Jerusalem has 70 years of desolation ahead of it and be, because of their sins. And in Daniel 9, 3, he says, I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayers and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Okay? Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 6, when he prophesies, hey, y'all, army is coming from the north. They will show no mercy. He begs his people to repent. It says, oh, daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning. Listen to this. Listen to this language. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentations for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. So at, here's another one. At the overwhel- underwhelming, at the underwhelming preaching of Jonah in Jonah 3, even while the prophet himself has a heart of rebellion against God, he warns the Ninevites. Remember this story? Remember the whale? Right? Warns the Ninevites of impending judgment, right? And he says, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And later, it says, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do. Jesus even speaks of this. So you're seeing this biblical theme all through scripture. When Jesus walks up to unrepentant hearts, even in the face of miracles, just done miracles right and left, right? And Jesus walks up, up to this city that has unrepentant, stiff neck. That's what we read earlier in Exodus, stiff neck hearts. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works of you had been an entire in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, and ashes. So the image of sackcloth and ashes is about expressing something. It's about expressing deep and acute sorrow over sin. It's, it's expressing an acknowledgement of the brokenness of the world, right? It's expressing, man, I see it. I, I watch the news. Man, we are all oh, we're messed up. We can't, we can't create a society that just doesn't continually devolve into violence and exploitation. It's expressing this kind of, I'm so done with all of my efforts. I'm so done with all of my attempts to try to create utopia on the earth. I just can't get there. And it's mourning over the, it's having a soft heart to the brokenness. I mean, what's your options, y'all? What's your options? You're either going to callous your heart to all the wickedness and brokenness you see in the world, or you're going to soften it, and you're going to say, this is not right. See, Lent calls us to soften our hearts to the brokenness we see in the world and mourn over the state of the world, right? And the church word is, is repentance. And of course, you're getting why this is not popular, you're getting why we would rather. If, I mean, if you could lose a season, just scoot Lent under the rug, right? I'd always laugh at this. Uh, Mike, who makes our graphics, which are awesome, I love them. He said, "Is there a subtitle?" And I, I was like, "No." And he's, he said, "Well, it should be. Is it over yet?" And I, 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 I just, I giggle every time I think about that. Um, it's all about the, the season's all about repentance, right? And that's no fun. Let's be honest. We're not gonna, you know, it's, no, it's not fun, right? It's a coming to the end of yourself. And if you notice, there's another pattern in scripture. Every time someone brushes the, up to the hem of God, right? Moses, Jeremiah, Elijah, whenever they have these encounters with the living God, they have this kind of response. When you see people who encounter spiritual beings and God in the Bible, most of the time they fall down as dead. They have this kind of experience that pushes them to the limit of their self. And they realize, they see now, see, it's the vision of God, y'all, that reveals to you your, your state. 
looking at yourself really won't help. Looking at those around you will not help. It's when we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith that all of a sudden we begin to see things in us that aren't right. And so some of us in this room right now are saying, I'm pretty fine, I'm good. I mean, we're all here, look at us, we're nice. I mean, I mean you know, the, we're good. You've got to button up, right? And you know what? I wonder, I wonder if the whole thing about the whole church thing is that the problem is that we're looking at each other and not God, right? And we're comparing ourselves to each other and not God. Okay, I just got off my notes. So it's acknowledging the deep, under the surface, sometimes subconscious inner brokenness uh, that causes us to do things that we hate. That's what we're getting at, okay? And maybe you don't have those things. I, I certainly do, okay? I do things that I do not understand myself, right? Like things I hate, things that I know are horrible for me. I mean, have you ever just realized, if you're just like, you're going through your day and all of a sudden you realize, I am enraged right now, and you don't even know why. You're probably hungry, right? You probably need to eat a meal. But like sometimes, you, sometimes dude, I mean, does anyone acknowledge this? Sometimes you can just be doing life, and be, you're just so round, and you're like, why am I so angry right now? Or just realizing I'm continually doing things that I know are horrible for my relationships, horrible for my soul, horrible for my health, and I can't seem to stop. I don't know if you, it's just me, okay? So the whole ashes and dust thing represents a kind of fatigue. It's like I've had enough of sin destroying me. I'm done, right? And at the same time, it's confessing, God, you are the only one who can do something about this. It's asking God to have mercy. It's asking God, please don't give me or others what we know we really deserve, right? Which is not grace, right? And in the Bible, how do we see them doing that? Well, by stripping off all of their self-glorifying tendencies. This is what we see in the Bible, right? So a sackcloth, a self-glorifying tendency, we're going to come back to that. A sackcloth is exactly what it sounds like. It's a sack made of cloth <laughs> used for carrying things. So when I see sack, I immediately think of this, you know those burlap bags that they carry coffee in? I, I immediately think of that, right? They would strip off their glory. In Jonah 3, the king of Nineveh removes his robe. What does a king's robe represent? I mean, his stature, his glory, his strength, his wisdom. And what does he do? He takes it off. In Exodus, when God says, this is so profound, God, go sit with Exodus 33, man. When God says, you know what? Y'all can have the promised land. Milk flowing with, I mean, milk, I said it. Land flowing with milk and honey, which the vegetables say sounds sticky, you know? God says, you know what, my gift, I'm gonna get, y'all can have it, but I am not gonna go with you. This is profound. Oh, so profound. I'm gonna give you the thing you want, but not me. And what, what does it say they do? That how do they interpret that word? Exodus 34, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on their ornaments. What does an ornament represent? Like, not a Christmas tree ornament. We're talking about jewelry. We're talking about things that we hang on ourselves that makes you feel good, makes you look like girl got your hair did, right? Like, it makes you feel significant, right? You got that sweet new bag. I love bags. Don't give me a bag. It looks cool, right? You got them sweet new shoes. You got that awesome new car. It Ornaments, y'all, it shows your status. It shows your perceived importance in the world, right? 
your value in society, right? Your ornament to the things that you hold up to people, others, and God to prove you are worth something. And we do this today. I mean, of course. I mean, we just all the things. We do it, right? And it says, at the thought of getting God's blessing without getting God himself, it says, no one put their ornaments on. No one did. And in some ways, so in other words, they took off every defensive mechanism that we have to, to establish our own sense of value in the world. They, they took off the things that they held up to other people to say, I'm valuable, I'm important, I'm significant. And they said, I'm not. In the presence of God and without, without the nearness of God, dust and ashes. This is profound, man. You've got to read the Bible, okay? In some way, every time Lent comes around for me, I'm like, oh, Because it says to me, dude, yeah, it's okay. Breathe. No one here has it together. <laughs> Can we just sit with that for a second? Like, no one here has it together. Nobody. Like, we've, we're all just missing the mark, trying as best we can, sometimes winning, sometimes failing. Man, we're putting in the effort, sometimes not even trying. Right? No one. Like, breathe. Like, take off the mask. Like, it's not doing yourself any favors when you come into a room like this, and I'm fine, everyone's fine, you're fine, everyone's, yeah, praise them, amen, blessed be the name, right? And your life is imploding around you. You're not doing yourself. Dude, you are sabotaging your ability to come into the light when you act like things are fine when they're not. And every time Link comes around, I'm like, thank you, God. We can just, we can all come out. Whoo! The cat's out of the bag. Like we don't have to parade around anymore. Do you sense the liberty? Does anyone else? I'm just I'm screaming here. I got to calm it down, okay? Does, does anyone else have a sense of reprieve, of, of thinking about the fact, I don't, you're telling me, Chris, I don't have to pretend anymore? Chris, we're in church, bro. What do you mean I don't have to pretend anymore? <laughs> right? It means it, every time it comes around, it's like, oh, you know what, let's all just take our foot off the gas of like proving, 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 I'm awesome, I got this together. And let's just, can we just stop maybe for a second trying to continually prove ourselves to each other, yeah. right? He's in, right? Every time I'm like, dude, it's like relax. Let your guard down. I think God's trying to say that to some of us right now. I, 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 just, I just want to pause on this. And I want you to feel the sense of how coming out of darkness into light is in one sense absolutely terrifying and in the other sense the most liberating thing you will ever do with your entire life. This is why the call of the gospel is to repent and believe. It is to, it is to acknowledge something about yourself that we will not acknowledge often until we are pushed to the limit. It's acknowledging something about yourself. It's acknowledging that you do not have the power to do the things that we ought to be doing and want to be doing. It's acknowledging that we don't have the strength and the wisdom to make a life for ourselves that is happy, simply happy. So why, why the guys, when they experience God, they fall down as dead. It's coming to the end of themselves. And a vision of God is what you need, not a vision of your sin. Okay? It's a time when we are invited to put aside all of the posturing and defensiveness that stem from our own insecurities, right? We are invited in this season to be fully known, to take down the mask, to rip down the facade of perfection, 
that we are so driven to build up around us. Therefore, at the same time, y'all, it is totally terrifying and profoundly liberating. The season I'm inviting you into is a season of stripping off protective, self-justifying things that we hang on ourselves to prove that we're valuable, right? And maybe for the first time, be honest. Maybe for the first time in a long time, be honest. And therefore, the season that I'm calling you into is a season of immense vulnerability before God. It's like when, it's like when Saul puts his armor on David to fight Goliath. You remember that story? Just love all the kids' stories we're getting back into, right? Remember when Saul puts his armor on David to fight Goliath, right? Which is not really a kid's story if you read it. Chops his head off in the end, right? Um, it says, David tried to go in vain, in vain. He says, David says, man, I, I, can't, I can't wear this. Armor promises protection. And this is the king's armor, yo, right? The king's armor is going to make you look like tough, huh? Like made him look like a king. But in reality, what did it make him? Stuck. Stuck. And when we live our lives with our hearts behind a shield of armor. Yeah, you might, you might not get hurt, but you ain't going to be alive either. Right? That thing was made to go somewhere. It's like a boat sitting in the harbor. Right? You, you're going to defend. You're going to put on the armor. You're going to try to put up this front of toughness, and I got it all together. Dude, that, that boat was made to sail out in the ocean. It's going to be safe in the harbor, but it ain't ever going to live. It ain't going to do what it's intended to do. See, this is a season of taking off these protective layers, man of being vulnerable with God and with others. And I think some of us have things like this in our life right now. Things that we are clinging to that in reality are making you stuck. They're not helping you. Protective mechanisms that you're putting up when you get into relationships that are not helping you, right? Um, when we're desperately trying to measure up but feel stuck, the season when it calls us to take off those protective barriers between us and God and others um, that we think are keeping us safe, right? And ashes and dusts, ashes and dust represent lowering ourselves. So if the Tower of Babel represents reaching to the heavens to make a name for yourself, ashes and dust represents lowering yourselves or perhaps seeing yourself for who you are and what you are, which are created from dust, but made to rule and reign with God forever, but end up over and over again insisting that we know more than God when it comes to what brings blessing in our life. So I want to invite you, I want to invite all of us as a community to over the next month take an aggressive stance not to confront evil in the world, not to confront evil in your neighbor. Like, who wouldn't be in that, right? They're weirdos, right? But to confront and acknowledge your own weakness, your own limitations, and your own blind spots, to confront your mortality, to confront your imbalances, your capacity and tendency towards dysfunction, if you think you have them. It's a season that we are called to remember that because of sin, a massive recalibration, a revolution, a deep excavation must be done in our hearts for us to enter into life. And it's called repentance, right? That's why the gospel invitation is repent and believe. So already some of you, okay, everyone good? All right, good. Already some of you are like, okay, I'm out, you know? No, thank you. <laughs> didn't sign up for that. Like, bro, I hear you, but I got enough going on, right? I'm about to punch my boss in the mouth, right? My relationships are imploding around me. I think my kids hate me, right? The last thing I need is to come into church. I want here to be encouraged. last thing I need is to come in here and say, well, I just think if you acknowledge you're a dirty, dirty, guilty sinner, I think that would really help, you know? It's like, no, man. 
No, where's the door? My last pastor made me feel good about myself, right? I totally get it, man. I'm right there with you. No one wants to talk about this. Next time you're out with, at a dinner with friends, just throw out the topic, hey, why don't we talk about our mortality, right? <laughs> Let's talk about the fact we're all going to die. We're like, no, it's the last double date with the Smiths, right? No one wants to acknowledge their limitations here, much less their proclivity towards evil, right? But here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. Here's why we can go boldly where no man, right? Here's why we can go here, all right? Because at the root of all reality, stay with me, okay? At the root of all reality, we believe, we believe ultimate truth is saturated, not with judgment and condemnation. We believe ultimate reality is not founded on harsh, legalistic, oppressive taskmaster, taskmaster. But rather, at the center of all things is the self-sacrificing, wrath-absorbing, sin-removing, grace-filled, abundant favor of God whose loving kindness lasts forever. Okay, so are we chatting here? Okay, we believe at the root of all things is this kind of God, this kind of loving God. Hello, right? Uh, because look at me, if, I'm not sure if we believe it. If we believed it, then we could confront our darkest, deepest, most embarrassing sins. If you believed it, you could confront your insecurities and limitations and blind spot. Why? Because he loves you. And that gives you a kind of security and confidence that nothing else can give you. No amount of possessions, no amount of ornaments hanging off you can give you the kind of confidence that comes when you begin to actually believe that God loves you. That he's actually called you his son and his daughter, right? If we could just believe it, right? If you did, you wouldn't be shattered at the thought of, oh God, I'm not perfect. It wouldn't, cripple, it wouldn't cripple you. Guys, it wouldn't cripple you. You wouldn't fall apart at the thought of like, oh man, I'm not perfect, man. If we believed him, we wouldn't be terrified of coming out of the darkness. Only when we believe God is who he says he is does it free us to confront issues we'd rather not touch with a 10-foot pole. Because we know behind every call to repent, every uncomfortable thing in the Bible, every disciplining action of the Father is a Father who deeply loves us. That's our confidence. That's our confidence as Christians, who loves us and longs to fill us with life, right? Speak to them dry bones, right? Life into dry bones. We we believe that that is his intention for us, right? And honestly, I'm telling you right now, this is why I can't stop following Jesus. Like, this is why I'm stuck. I'm just here. Because only in Jesus do I see an invitation to be both fully known and fully loved. See, it seems to me that other religions go for one or the other. It's either honesty is our religion And we yield to every impulse and do our best to ignore guilt and ignore the relational train wreck behind us. There's one, right? Or it's guilt, shame, and peer pressure is our religion, right? And if you're broken, you better hide it, right? And don't talk about it. And you better project perfection or you're out of here. And Christians can fall in both of those camps, right? Most people feel it's either uh, you give in openly to your impulses in darkness or you lie about it and fake it, right? (laughs) And both are trying to avoid this one thing, right? So it's either moral relativity or moral condemnation, right? But only the gospel makes a way for us to rise above our animal sinful instincts without having to lie about them, dismiss them, or pretend they don't exist. Mm -hmm. Only in the gospel can we be ruthlessly honest without being at the same time crushed under the hopelessness that that honesty breeds. Huh? You chatting? That makes sense because the gospel tells us, if we can hear it, that Jesus took the crushing for us. Jesus, when you, I'm going to talk about this right here. 
When you get ruthlessly honest about your imperfections, do you not feel the weight? Do you not feel the crushing on you? Do you not feel the lack of value and I'm falling apart? Okay, the gospel says Jesus took that weight from you. That's what it means, man. That's why we repent and believe. The crushing that we feel under the moral law that none of us could keep, Jesus took. He took that crushing, man. He was crushed on our behalf. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Crushed on our behalf. And he calls us now just to be honest. Be honest about it, man. And then he offers to take the crippling weight that that honesty produces onto himself. That's what the Bible's getting at, man. We're invited to repent, be honest, call sin, sin, and believe that the blood of Christ is strong enough to cover it. That's why I have no clue where the whole Christian plastic thing comes from. I just don't get it. You know, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, I'm a small group leader, can't be honest, can't show any cracks in the armor, right? Or now I preach a sermon, I'm perfect, don't struggle with anything anymore. What world are you living in, bro? <laughs> That's not, that's not reality, right? If, and in fact, if that is the case, if, if, if that is the case, then Jesus died for nothing, right? Y'all, here's it. I'm going to sentence for you right here. I'm going to lay this sentence on you. Christians need Jesus too, okay? You don't stop needing Jesus once you become a Christian. If anything, it ratchets it up more, right? Like what started as a whisper becomes a desperate cry. Father, I need you so much more now, right? It's why Jesus, y'all, it's why Jesus is always telling religious people, hey, prostitutes and whores are getting in the kingdom before you. He's trying to say to them, man, you, uh, your external moral religious rightness and efforts has become what Tim Keller calls a monument to your own name, right? And in your arrogance and self-made uh, Success, forget your desperate need for God. See, their hearts had grown icy cold on the heights of their moral success. They were harsh and unapproachable and demanding just like they thought God was, right? But man, the whores, the prostitutes, the societal outcast, they were deeply aware of their need. They knew they had failed. They didn't hide that. They knew they were losers. And it seems that acknowledging your need and failure is really one of the only prerequisites for becoming a Christian. You can't become a Christian if you've not failed. So I, I don't know how your heart responds to all this, if you're offended or relieved or what, um, but I'll just never forget Mark Rutland. We're going to wrap it up. It's going long today, sorry. I'll never forget Mark Rutland talking about this. He said, you know where the one place you could go and preach, repent and believe, and people will respond in droves? The prison yard. Does you know the one place you preach this and people get offended and walk off? Church. Yeah. They close their Bibles and they say, I've already done that. Thank you very much. All right? So this is the reason I appreciate this season. Every year it roots us in the rhythms of the gospel. Right? It, I mean, Advent, light came, sun is given, Lent reminds us our only qualification is repenting and believing. Right? Easter brings us back to the cross. Every year claims that Jesus conquered every limitation and weakness, even death itself and offers his rightness to us if we will believe. So there's value in this season, in my opinion, only insofar as it calls you back to the rhythms of the gospel. But if there's anyone we'd leave out, it'd be this one, right? Um, which makes me want to say, well, what, what's our version here? Like, why, are we, why, why is addressing our own weakness so hard for us? Why do we crave vulnerability and honesty and at the same time are terrified of it, right? Like, what is it in me that hates, hates to acknowledge when I'm wrong, right? So... I'm under no illusion that everyone in here is like, sweet, 
I've always wanted to confront my demons. Thank you, pastor. Yeah, let's do this. And that's fine. That's fine. I'm, I, that's where you're at, dude. I get it. I get it. But to me, uh, here is one of the great payoffs of going through something like this with a group of people, right? Um, do y'all remember American Idol? You remember like the really early, state, or early phase of American Idol when these poor, poor, sweet souls came on there, who's, I guess whose parents and friends told them they were talented? Um, if you just want to like cringe for 30 minutes, just Google worst American Idol auditions. I did it this morning and I almost made you watch one, but I was like, no, no. Because like it's so painful. Oh, it's so painful. Right? And these poor souls have a reckoning of a lifetime on national TV, right? It's like cruel. Like, it's like almost unbearable to watch, right? And remember the Simon? Remember the judge, Simon? Like, he would ask them. He, like, one time he was like, who told you you could sing? And, and this person said, all my friends told me. I was like, well, either they're not your friends or they are tone deaf, right? Okay, so you remember, you remember those? <clears throat> I bring that up. Because I don't, I don't want you uh, to one day stand before the judge of the universe and say, everyone else told me I was fine. I was, just, I was just going with the general sentiment of my culture at large. And in doing so, we're living in a fantasy world who never had the guts to face its own darkness. Just covered it, I just, I've just been covering it up with entertainment, sex, and food, and distractions. And in doing so, have completely lost awareness of myself. Just completely, the Proverbs talks about being so arrogant that you cannot see or hate your own sin. Right? Like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you. Like, we, we reckon with this now so that we don't have to reckon with it later. We confront it now so that it will not be confronted to us later. We, we give God permission now to deal with these things so later he... You know, are we, yeah, right? I know American Idol is a silly example, example, but we see someone utterly blind to something about themselves. And Christianity is going to call you out of fantasy into reality. And the payoff is you don't have to walk around in a complete lie anymore, <laughs> right? The, the real payoff, y'all, isn't confronting the lie, really. It's accepting the truth, which is despite your rebellion, despite your countless flaws, and preference for darkness, he loves you with a love. He loves you with a love that shatters all of your defenses and sins. He loves you with a kind of love that takes your rebellion and sin and chunks it into the depths of the sea, never be seen again. That's the kind of love that we submit to. That's the, that's the payoff we get, is experiencing the love of God in reality. Hmm? Maybe for the first time. One of the ways that, Christian, that Christians throughout history have said is a helpful way in the Bible of addressing things like this has, is fasting. And we're going to wrap it up here. There's a whole lot of things you can fast, but here's what I want to challenge you with this, way, this, this week. I, I, want to, I want to challenge you this week to go without food, maybe just one meal, and maybe you can do a whole day. That's fine, whatever. I, I want to challenge you just, just one meal. Just to say one meal. Let's make it easy, Okay. Challenge you, go this week, go without one meal, and you're pretty quickly going to realize you, you're a limited being <laughs> who desperately needs things outside yourself to thrive, right? But when you do it, I, I want you to talk to God in place of, of eating that meal. And I want you to ask him, reveal to me my blind spots. I want you to ask him, Lord, 
Show me the things that I am doing that's wrecking my relationships. I want you to ask God. Lord, show me the attitudes and behaviors of my heart that are sabotaging my joy, that are sabotaging my ability to be in healthy relationships. And if you would be so bold, I I think God might answer you. I think he might invite you in to a kind of life that is more full of flourishing and, and, and thriving than you could ever dream or experience, man. Or think, you, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? I'm not saying it very well, but I think you know what I'm trying to say. To ask God to open your eyes, right? Um, and lastly, I, I want to ask you, actually, very honestly, um, if you should participate with us. Next week, we're going to talk a lot more about fasting. But if this week you do this in some small capacity, during that, during that time, I want to ask you to pray for our church. I want, you, I want you to ask you to be vulnerable with God and ask, ask him to sift you and, and come in to, and look at the things. And I want you to ask you to pray for our church. Cool? cool. All right, let's, let's stand and pray.